at this point, we are almost at the midpoint of our sermon series looking at the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is one of the, the oldest statements of faith in church history, outside of the scriptures, of course. But they were, it, the, the Apostles' Creed was written within a generation um, of those first disciples, of those first apostles. And this creed has joined together followers of Jesus for nearly 2,000 years as they have affirmed and passed down core elements, core precepts of the faith. Now, as we've been looking, looking at this over the last month, month and a half, um, I've shared that the, the goal in this is for it not just to be an intellectual exercise. And I want to encourage that again, that it's so easy when we read our Bibles or we study something like the Apostles' Creed or read a commentary that it just kind of builds facts in our mind, right? Sharpens our theology, which is important, but it is not the most important because we don't want to just be this to be a cognitive exercise where we think rightly about God, but we want to see the dividends of how it yields in our lives. How is our life different because Jesus rose from the dead? Those are the kind of things that we want to try to get to. How does the creed make a day-to-day difference in our lives? Last week we saw that Jesus, uh, we, we, we saw that Jesus Christ through his descent to the, to the dead, I don't like descended into hell, uh, I shared a little about that last week, I don't think that is accurate to what happened. Uh, the Old Testament, I use this, this Old Testament idea of the language of Sheol, uh, that this, this holding place of the dead that, that I uh, advocated that the creed teaches that Jesus went to to break those bands of death that kept, um, not kept us trapped because we're not dead, but the, the saints in the Old Testament trapped providing victory for them, ushering them into the presence of God. It was a reminder that we were able to recognize that death would not have the final word in our lives as well. Two weeks ago, we looked at the suffering of Jesus, right? That Jesus, as a propitiation, as both Paul and John described using this language, propitiation, satisfying, absolving, turning away the wrath of God against our sins on the cross, And so both of these last two weeks, we looked at the work of Jesus to provide for us, whether it was a righteousness through his death or his his descent to Sheol to break the bonds of death over us. Now, when I used to, before working here, I worked with students at uh, Pitt's campus, University of Pittsburgh, and I used to like to put forward provocative statements. I I used to kind of challenge our thinking a little bit. And uh, the goal was to get, you know, to, to use the, the expression that we use a lot of times in our culture is to play devil's advocate, right? Because I think when we are able to answer the hard questions, it can give a reinforcing understanding of, the, of our understanding of, of what Christ has done. And so in this case, uh, thinking about the ramifications of salvation. And so what I had put before them was if we believe that Jesus on the cross, which was where he crushed the claim that sin had on our lives, right? The cross is the action of paying for our sins. Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. Could that hypothetically have been the end of the story? Right? Was that the moment of sin's defeat when he shouted, it is finished? Put another way, if Jesus on the cross defeated sin and shame, was the resurrection even necessary? Right? In short, I was trying to help students grapple with the resurrection and how, it was, how they understood it in their life of faith. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus as it speaks in the, the next clause of the creed. We're going to look at his ascension to the heavens. So we'll be looking at the statement. On the third day, he rose again 
he being Jesus, of course, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we're going to look at those three clauses separately. We're going to spend the majority of our time with the first, talking about, thinking about the resurrection. We're going to look briefly then at his ascension and where he currently uh, sits, where he currently resides in, in heaven. And then we'll try to wrap up with some application. And so as has been our practice, uh, what we've been doing is we've been reciting the creed together uh, in unison. This is not something that we have a lot of culture doing here at City Reach, but I think it's an, a good communal exercise for us to boldly declare these things to be true. So we're only going to go as far as we have uh, learned to this point in time, so let's recite it. The words will be on the screen. Um, so friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Here's today's. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the creed continues with what we know to be true of the gospel story that the third day after Jesus' death, he came back alive. Now, granted, this isn't like, some people like to think that it's three days later. It's not, you know, three literal days, uh, but it is, this is kind of the ancient way of counting days where you start on the one that you are currently residing in. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And this concept of the third day has quite a uh, lineage in biblical history. And I, I'm not going to go into all the details, but just to kind of throw a couple up there. You, you have the prophet Jonah, who was in the, the belly of the great fish, for three days before he got expelled, we'll say, uh, onto the, the land outside of Nineveh. Abraham, when he was on his way to, to sacrifice Isaac, going to Mount Moriah, it was on that third day, the text says, that he arrives. He looked up and he saw the final destination that the Lord had been calling him to. And so this idea of three days bringing a sense of completion of a journey or or highlighting a transformation is no stranger to scripture. And so in the same three days, Jesus defeated death and bodily rose from the grave. Now I've got, you know, one of the things that's been kind of awkward for me in this series is I, I am much more comfortable going through like a book of the Bible and then having a core text that we just kind of look through and piecemeal. But this is a little bit more topical. Uh, and so I have a a handful of verses that we're going to go through pretty quick, pretty rapid fire. If you want to write them down and look at them at your own leisure, you're welcome to. If you're real quick, you might be able to look at them while I read them. Uh, but we've got some passages that I, that I want us to focus on to understand the, the ramifications, why it was important that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Because I'm getting back to that early question of what difference does it make? Is the resurrection important? So let's start with Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul here is saying that the resurrection marked Jesus as the Son of God. The resurrection affirmed the claims that he had said in life, right? When we, we see that Jesus said that the Father and he are one, that he was this divine Son of God that our pathway to heaven, that, that path, the way, the truth, and the life to God is only through him. 
Right? The resurrection, one of the important pieces of the resurrection is that it authenticated his message. Let's go next to 1 Corinthians 15, which is really one of the most classic New Testament verses that talk about the importance of the resurrection. The whole chapter. I'm only going to be reading, I don't know, like seven verses in it. And the next two principles come out of that. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, just a side note here, right? At the time of Paul and the church in Corinth here, Paul is writing to these because there were some people in the church questioning the resurrection of the dead. Now, this wasn't a denial of Christ's resurrection. They weren't saying that Jesus wasn't raised. But these people were arguing that his resurrection was unique, that the rest of us wouldn't benefit from it. So just to kind of make sure, I, I want to I make sure that that's clear, that they weren't denying Christ's resurrection. They were saying, well, that's all well and good, Christ raised from the dead, but we're out of luck, up the creek. Paul continues, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, he then says, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. So again, this is all conjecture. If that's the case, then we're lying because we're saying God raised him from the dead. If he, if he didn't actually raise him from the dead, we're, we're being dishonest. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Here, tune in here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So going back to that provocative statement that I made at the beginning that I would make with students periodically at Pitt's campus, right? going through this mental exercise that if Jesus you know, died on the cross for our sins but didn't rise from the dead, Paul speaks directly to that in this passage. So first, if Christ, did not if Christ did not rise from the dead, as he says in verse 17, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. Like Paul makes this direct leap that while Christ suffered for our sins when he died on the cross, the resurrection was necessary to showcase his authority to do so. By rising from the dead, it showed that Jesus didn't just talk the talk, but walked the walk. Right? He had the authority to accomplish that which he promised. And so the resurrection gives us confidence that we aren't still in our sins, that we are actually forgiven, that God is indeed working in our lives. What's more, in verse 18, Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of those who have fallen asleep, that's how Paul puts it, it's a it's a euphemism for death. Right? Paul's saying all those people who have died, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then that, there's no hope for them. That's it. It's the end of story. Christ's resurrection also provides hope that our time, when our time ends on the earth, it won't be the end of the story. Right? Because Christ rose from the dead, I also can have confidence that I too will experience, not just that my spirit will go and be with God when I die, but that when Jesus comes back, there will be a physical, bodily resurrection. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21, kind of 20 and 21, kind of highlight that component. 
Paul concludes this section by saying that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we, we only have hope in this life. And when we breathe our last breath, that's it. And if that's the case, we're to be pitied above all mankind for our foolish hope. The resurrection is essential to the hope that we have. Let's jump back to Romans. Romans 6, verse 4, Paul says that we were buried therefore with him, with Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is one of the reasons that I um, I don't think this is the best te- text to explain why I'm a, I'm a Baptist in my theology, you know, believer's baptism by immersion. Uh, but it, it surely gives that metaphorical picture that I love in immersion because it's symbolic, it's a metaphor for us being buried with Jesus in death under the water and coming up, being raised to him in Newton. But, but check what it said, in newness. Not, we will be raised on the last day, But here Paul's saying that we too might walk in newness of life. And what Paul's saying here is that because of the resurrection, he's reminding us that when we follow Jesus, we are living that resurrection life now. That this isn't something that we have to wait for till the end of days, but that we can experience that abundant life that Jesus offered in the here and now. A confidence, again, that we have in light of the resurrection. He's drawing those those as direct comparisons. The last consequence uh, of the resurrection that I want to highlight, there's plenty more, but just for the sake of of time today, um, it doesn't have an explicit passage that we're going to go to, but I I think it highlights pretty much the the full breadth of what the New Testament proclaims. If we were to, again, hypothetically say that Jesus did not rise physically from the dead, what that would mean is that right now, he's not reigning, he's not in heaven, he's not coming again. And so if that were to be the case, then the Apostles' Creed should just end after Christ's suffering, where it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Full stop. End of the story. Now we're going to look at Jesus' reigning in a moment, uh, and and his return, this idea of the second coming, is what we're going to focus on next week. So suffice suffice it to say, I hope I've kind of given some evidence as to why this is something that should be important to us. Not that I thought anyone was actually feeling like, ah, the resurrection, you know, we, don't, we can throw that out the window. But again, just, just to, hypothetically, it's a positive, helpful exercise to go through. The resurrection is the fulcrum upon which the good news of God rests. You know, as Christians, we don't typically call ourselves Good Friday people. As important as the suffering of Jesus on the cross was, it was incomplete. It wasn't the end of the story. We call ourselves resurrection people. We call ourselves Easter people because the act, through the act of Christ being raised from the dead, he showcased his power over sin and death and gave us hope that he is working, that he's doing wonders in our lives. The purpose of Easter is to remind us that we cannot go to God on our own. We could not pay the penalty, right? You and I don't have pocketbooks big enough to pay the penalty that... that, Not that it's actually monetary, but if it was monetary, we wouldn't have it. We would have a drop in the bucket. Jesus makes some comparisons with uh, 10,000 talents and, uh, you know, a couple hundred uh, denarii. We're not going to go to that that one there. But it shows kind of how how incomplete the the gulf is there, how, how big the chasm is, as we sang this morning. Surely in death as well, we could not will ourselves to life by any power of our own. It's only by the undeserved grace and love of of God that we receive it. 
But I think as we think about the resurrection, this is something that can be lost in the broader culture that we live in. And, and at times, even people who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you have probably heard the, the name Raphael Warnock. He was one of the Democratic um, senators. He was involved in that runoff in Georgia uh, at the beginning of the calendar year. He won a seat in the Senate. And uh, Senator Warnock is, is a pastor. Uh, in fact, he, he um, pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the, that historic church that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to shepherd. The interesting thing is, last month during Easter, he, he tweeted this out. This comes from his official Twitter account. He says, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now, I don't, I don't have time to dissect everything he said, but friends, like what this pastor said is not the gospel. This is more in line with the philosophy of like humanism something that I would argue is diametrically opposed to the essence of the gospel. Not saying that it's bad to help others and uh, love others. That, that's important. That is, a, that is a ramification, a result of the gospel, that Jesus has put newness of life for us. Because he loved us, we love others. But that is not the pathway that we save ourselves. You know, Warnock has said that this wasn't, it, it was since deleted, but, you know, this, our age, everybody has screenshots of things. You say something, it's permanent. Uh, at least if you're a person of influence and you say something that's permanent. You know, Warnock has claimed that he never tweeted this, that it was just someone on his team, but, uh, you know, you, you gotta, he, he's got to allow his feet to be held to the fire a little bit because this was his official Twitter account that said it. And, and I would argue that a man of God, uh, I don't agree with all of his positions, um, but, I mean, he, he is a pastor who I believe loves Jesus. Uh, he ought to know better than, than this kind of thing. Because right, the, the resurrection is not about our ability to save ourselves. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Just to paraphrase what Paul said in the letter to the Ephesians, he says, you were dead in your sins. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're dead, how much can you do to help yourselves? You can't do anything. He continues, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even while we were dead in those sins, made us alive with Christ. So as you can see, again, the resurrection was an event in history that had profound ramifications in our lives. So I would say this is the first take-home for us. All of those consequences that I mentioned before are ours because of the resurrection. We can have confidence that our sins have been erased the psalmist tells us that they are separated as far as the east is from the west. Sometimes we don't feel like God has changed us. But we look to the cross, we look to the resurrection to know the truth of, of the righteousness that God has given us. We can live abundantly in, in that newness, that life that Christ gives us in the here and now. We can be assured that death won't have the final word in Christ's life. It didn't in Christ's life, and it won't in ours either. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Chris, that's all well and good, but how do we know for sure that this event happened? We, we live in this culture of postmodernity, of deconstructionism, which is just kind of taking anything that had any kind of authority or truth, we just want to break down, hopefully rebuilding it up again. But how do we know for sure that Jesus bodily rose from a de the dead and that this wasn't a, a story just made up by his followers? 
And if you're asking that question, it's a fair question. The church should be, ought to be a safe place for us to ask questions like that, to wrestle with faith, because it's only through the wrestling of our faith that we can really have it honed. You know, the, 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 the probably overused metaphor of faith being like a muscle. You go to the gym and you bench press. I can't bench press very much, but you know, the little I can bench press, it tears the muscles. It breaks them down. It deconstructs them so that the body can reconstruct them stronger than it was before. So deconstruction of faith, because that's something, I, I listen to the Holy Post podcast a lot, Phil Vischer and Sky Jathani. Uh, I highly recommend it. They, it's really good. They off, they've been talking the last like three weeks in a row about deconstructionism. Deconstructionism is not in and of itself something to be afraid of as long as what follows is that rebuilding. And we can rebuild in faith, I think, stronger than we left it. But again, I, I digress a little bit. There are people who do doubt the, the truthfulness, the veracity of these stories, because they don't fit the frameworks of how, how we understand the world. Dead people aren't allowed, they're not able, not allowed, but they're not able to come back to life. And so therefore, people who hold to that, in their minds, right, there has to be a, a different explanation. Something else, I, I shared about the swoon theory a couple of weeks ago, that's just a way to try to make it fit modern medicine, but sometimes God doesn't fit modern medicine. Now, I think it's worth, as we're investigating this, as we're considering this, well, could this have been a, a, an invented story by the church? We need to remember that the church in the ancient world was a very fragile entity. They wielded very, very little power in those first few centuries. There's a, you know, the, the quote that's often attributed to Winston Churchill, that history is written by the victors. It's used to say that those who have power often revise or you know, kind of tweak history to show themselves in a better light, to main, con maintain control over or maintain power over the controls that they have. But we have to remember the church didn't have this kind of power. They were a tiny drop in the vast ocean that was the Roman Empire. It wasn't actually until almost 400 years after the death of Christ that the church like, being a Christian was even legal. Prior to that, I mean, there was just horrendous persecution and death of, of the saints. It wasn't until, like, 382, I think, was the Edict of Milan by Constantine, which legalized Christianity as social, a socially acceptable form of worship in the empire. So I think we need to keep that in mind, that these weren't people who had any power to maintain a control of. But I still present, present the following facts for your consideration. First is this, no one in the history of antiquity in that time was able to produce the body of Jesus. We see in the Gospel of Matthew that the religious leaders uh, asked Pilate to add some extra guards to the tomb because they had heard that Jesus had, you know, bragged a little bit about not staying dead. And they're like, we want to make sure his disciples don't steal the body and kind of perpetuate this myth as they thought it was. But the church didn't have the power to do that. Even after the resurrection of Jesus and its conflict with the Roman Empire, no one has been able to provide the body of Jesus. I'll fully acknowledge that, you know, if this were a legal proceeding and we were in a court of law, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm just conjecturing, right? The absence of Jesus' body would be circumstantial evidence at best. But it was evident that the religious leaders and the Roman Empire had a vested interest to squash what they thought was a myth. They had resources. They could have figured some of this out. 
but they weren't able to. No one has been able to provide his, even with their resources, his body. Secondly, the early church had powerful experiences with Jesus following his resurrection. Jesus stuck around for about 30, 40 days after his resurrection. Actually, I think last Sunday or two Sundays ago was technically Ascension Sunday, a good month after Easter. The church was regularly gathering in this time. You had groups of 50 to 200 people with Jesus in their midst. So there were eyewitnesses to this resurrection. And, you know, some people say, well, it was a, it was a mass hallucination. I don't know, 50 to 200 people, like, for a period of a month? I, you're talking, like, statistical anomaly to, to be that. that I, I find that very unconvincing. Because these same disciples who saw Jesus after he had ra- been raised from the dead were willing to suffer for the truth. They were tortured. They were killed for this knowledge and this profession, or their, the way they professed. I love the way Chuck Colson put it. Chuck Colson was, uh, he was Nixon, Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He was one of the primary political figures who took the fall for the Watergate scandal. He said this, and I quote, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And when they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured it if that were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. He said, you're telling me you could, uh, uh, 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That testimony of the disciples never wavered under fierce scrutiny. And we saw a lot of that when we were looking at Acts several months ago. Lastly, the church of Jesus Christ has shared its experience with the resurrection Christ. We, those of us who follow Jesus, have had a, 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 some type of experience with him. Over 2,000 years of church histories, historian C.F.D. Mole says this. He says, if the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, the church followers of Jesus, that's what he calls them, a phenomenon undeniably attested in the New Testament, It rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection. What does a secular historian propose to stop it up with? The whole kind of pursuit of history is founded upon this. If you try to take the resurrection out of there, it leaves you this donut. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact we can trust with significant implications in our lives. As soon as I said donut, I started thinking about donuts and donut holes and a donut hole in the donut hole. And I was like, where did I hear that? We had, some of us had watched uh, Knives Out not too long ago. Sorry. I, my mind was, was like going down this rabbit trail and I couldn't. So I, I wanted to get that out there so I could get back to focusing on this. Sorry. My ADHD in full display here. Anyway, that was a lot on the resurrection. Uh, but it's truly, because it truly is the hinge on which the, the, the history of the world pivots. So let's look at the second clause in the creed. And we're not, I, I promise I won't take as long on these others. Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 gives us the narrative about what happened. It says, and when Jesus had said these things, right, he's with his disciples. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they're gazing at, into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now remember, if you were here last week, we talked about Jesus descending to the dead. And I I said that descent was not necessarily meant to be a direction. It wasn't that Jesus just kind of went and hung out underground, under the earth, in the dirt. But that it expressed some degree of movement, a shift in dignity or worth, not necessarily place. So here, too, we see Jesus ascending to heaven. And it doesn't just mean that he went up to the clouds. I I know that's what the text appears to say. Uh, I'm not saying that's not what physically happened. But we know that God doesn't, like, live in the clouds, right? Like, outer space above us is not God's domain, right? You know, if if heaven is above us, you know, what about, like, people on the other side of the earth, right? Because the earth's not flat, right? Just making sure we, we hold to that, too. So, so this idea of heaven, heaven is typically used in scripture three different ways. First, it describes the dwelling place of God, right? The space, physical or spiritual, that God inhabits. A lot of times in, in the book of Ephesians, you see a lot of this language of you have the heavenly realms. We'll just put that in the middle. You have the lower earthly regions. Again, doesn't mean that the earth is below heaven in a directional sense, but that it is not as nice of a place. It's not where God dwells in the same fullness of heaven. And then even above heaven, there was the heaven of heavens, the, the holy of holies. Think about the temple. Right? The, the temple is kind of a metaphor for this in, in uh, Jerusalem, in, in the Old Testament. Right? You had kind of this, this outer court of the Gentiles, people who were not part of the family of God could dwell. But then there was like the platform where the sacrifices happened, where you know, the, the Jewish people could go. And then you had the temple building itself that the priests could go in. It was very elaborately decorated. But then there was a small chamber in the back of the room that was the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was, that was where God physically dwelled on earth, or it was his footstool, if you will. You know, think about like uh, propping, that was God propping his feet up. If you, you know, the bottom of his throne was the Ark of the Covenant. That's what scripture teaches. But only one person could go in there once a year, right? The high priest. Again, I'm kind of digressing, but you see this transition where while there is a directional move, it's a metaphor for a more full experience of the presence of God. So heaven, in its basic understanding, is the place where God dwells. Secondly, heaven is often used in the New Testament to describe the state of angels or humanity as they experience shared life with God, right? It means that, you know, ooh baby, you know what it's worth. Heaven is a place on earth, you know? I wasn't in my notes, sorry. Um, As we experience God through the power of his Holy Spirit, we can experience heaven here on earth. But lastly, heaven also meant the sky. And that's how we see it used in this passage specifically here, as Jesus is physically directionally ascending, but that's not what the ascension necessarily means. See, sky is one of those things, this, the, the ways in which our culture that we, uh, and, and science that we experience infinity. Like, we can't, we can't grasp the fact that space goes on forever. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe you can. I can't grasp that. It it's kind of boggles my mind to think about. And so skies, something that kind of kept going, kept going, kept going, as far as you didn't know how far it went, were a symbol or an emblem of God's eternal life, is what it pointed to. And so Jesus, let's, let's kind of 
break this down. So you had one, which is where God dwells. Two is, if we are experiencing the presence of God, we've got heaven. Three is just the sky, more of a physical descriptor. So Jesus, when he walked the earth, always experienced heaven in that number two definition. He experienced God in the day-by-day, minute-by-minute life. Now, in this passage that we just looked at in Acts, Jesus went to heaven. He went to the sky. He went to definition number three of heaven. But it was the purpose of it was to be a symbol for number one. Jesus' literal ascent was meant to be a metaphor for his physical transfer, for his transition from this physical and earthly domain to the one that houses the full presence of God. So if Jesus is in heaven, he's not just sitting there patiently waiting to return, twiddling his thumbs. The Bible says that he has authority, that he is active, that he is reigning right now. And that final clause of the creed says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, I, I know like this is why it's important to understand some background, because if we just read the Bible or we read a creed like this superficially, we might think, okay, well, God's throne is here and Jesus is literally just sitting next to God's right hand. Because that's what, that's what the Bible that's the picture that the Bible gives. But I don't know that it's meant to give us this like spatial, you know, who, who's who, where are each of these in the heavenly realms. Being at the right hand of God was meant to indicate his regal function. It's the place of authority. It means that Jesus Christ has kind of a, a full, uh, you know, charge, authority over the earth. And he has authority in the heavens as kind of this regent of God, the Father, right now. And so this, this leads us to the, the second piece of application. That Jesus is alive, that he's reigning now, and he's advocating for us. And so that means that this world that we live in, and so going back to that picture that I, I gave from Ephesians where you have the, the, the heaven of heavens, you have the heavenly realms, and you have the earth. Whoever was in that higher plane of existence has authority over the plane of existence below it. So the fact that Jesus has authority in the heavenly realms, that God has the full authority in the heavenly realms, means that by definition, this is kind of in the the, the view of Paul, how Paul would have been writing this, it means that they have authority over the lower regions, which would be, be the earth. And so Christ right now has dominion, like this is my father's world. He's got dominion over our world, our nation, our neighborhoods. And in truth, God's the creator, so this has always been the case. This has always been his world. But what we saw on the cross and what we see in the resurrection is that while evil has infiltrated the world, Christ has won a decisive victory against the powers of darkness. Now, all of that being said, that is all true. That's what the Bible teaches. But I have to acknowledge that there are times in my life when it doesn't feel like the truth. Again, I'm not saying that it's not true, but it doesn't, my experience doesn't feel that way. Right? We see violence in our communities. There's violence in our households. We see those who are lacking basic necessities like food and shelter. We know people who are sick chronically, people who die. So there are often times where we look at our Father's world and it feels like it's spinning helplessly out of control. And so I want to encourage you, in those times, this is why it's important to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it's a reminder 
regardless of how I feel or what my experience is, the truth with a capital T is that God hasn't forsaken us, that he hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us to our own devices, but has determinedly entered into the world and set it back on the right course. G.I. Packer described it like the end of a chess match. I don't know if any of you guys ever played chess. But there, there can be a point near the end of the game, right, where if you are kind of on the, the move, you're on the offensive. You've got your king, right, because if you didn't have your king, you would have lost. But you have like a queen and a rook. It's, my, it's the, the move that's easiest with those two. If you've got the queen and the rook and all they've got left is their king, your victory is assured. You, you like, I mean, you, I guess you hypothetically, I don't know that you could lose. Uh, I don't know, I'm not that good at chess, but it, it, you just, if you're smart, you can't lose. We'll put it that way. Right? Because while that king is doing everything it can, that, that opposing king, to kind of stay out of that trap that you're trying to form them with the queen and the rook, it's, the, the, the defeat is already assured. Jai Packer is saying that that's similar to what we're experiencing in our world right now. The victory is assured, but the enemy has, just hasn't given up yet. Hasn't you know, knocked over the king and, and uh, resigned, forfeited. We live in this time that the resurrection gave us the definitive proof that victory is assured, but those enemies of God, they're click kicking and clawing with everything they have to try to, you know, with futility, overturn those results. So we can have hope that God is here and that nothing occurs outside of his knowledge. We talked about that at the beginning, right? That God doesn't slumber. So he is always on alert for our benefit. And that there's not even anything we can do to derail his purposes. So we can rest in his confidence that he's preparing this world for his kingdom. But Jesus sitting at the right hand of God has another function for us, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is interceding before us. I've got two passages that highlight this. First is Hebrews 7.25. The author says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. It's kind of a funny word, uttermost. makes me think of cows. But uttermost is a word we don't use very often. It's an archaic word that means even in the most extreme cases. Those who draw near to God through him. Even extreme cases, you're not too far from the grip of God. Because it says that he makes intercession for them. John also writes in his letter, first letter, 1 John 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So even when we don't feel like transformed people, even when we're going down pathways that we know we ought not to, but we have no willpower, we have no self-control, right? even, even when we are screwing up royally all the time, when that dead part of our sin doesn't want to stay dead but rears its ugly head at us, even when we continue to fall short of God's perfect, perfect standard, we have a risen Savior who is in heaven now advocating on our behalf. He's used that collateral of his precious blood, which has effectiveness that is never going to be depleted. We cannot outsin God's grace. Not that we should try. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. Don't try. But there is an infinite amount of grace for those of us that find ourselves on the wrong side of the tracks. The resurrection reminds us that we are not doomed to die of our sins, but that we have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Right, an abundant life that we can experience in the here and now, and even as we await his perfection that's coming. 
And we saw that Jesus continues to be a presence for us, speaking as our defense lawyer before God, advocating for us, continuing to purify us with his grace and love. Something that's only able to happen because he died and rose to life again. That's why we are truly a resurrection people. Join me in prayer. God, you are a God who has magnificently shown your power. That even when evil thought that they were winning by killing the Son of God on the cross, you turned like Judo, turned that move, turned turn that energy around from them to overthrow them. God, we pray that we would walk in that newness of life now, that we would have a hope that our sins have been addressed, that we are innocent in your sight, that we have a righteousness that is not our own. And because of that, you are able to, as we sang this morning, pursue us with your goodness. You look at us with love, not scorn, knowing that Christ continues to advocate for us. Lord, it's like we wouldn't get past the bouncer into heaven, but Jesus comes out and said, he or she's with me. May we continue to rest in that faithful presence that's reigning in heaven now. In that name we pray.